Hello and welcome to Map Bites, episode 173. I'm Elaine Giles and I'm here with my co-host Mike Thomas. In this episode, we're forklifting fish fingers in the face of an Amazonian fiasco. Welcome back and if you're new, great to have you with us and welcome to the Map Bites family. Map Bites is a tech podcast where we share our thoughts on tech news, Apple Kit, and so much more. We also review apps and as IT professionals, we share both our love for hardware and software. We're a quirky show. You can check that out at macbytes.co.uk. Head over there and look for the newbie's guide to MacBytes, full of all our adventures from the last 16 years of doing MacBytes. But first, we have feedback. Last week in show 172, I mentioned Elon. Elon and his desire to hoard your biometric data. I asked how you'd feel about that. Jammy got straight back to me. And I quote, To answer your Elon question, I wouldn't trust that odious cretin with the biometrics of a frozen fish from Iceland, let alone my own. (laughs) Couldn't have expressed it more forcefully myself, Jammy. I fear we might need to explain that in this context, Iceland is a frozen food store in the UK, rather than the country of Iceland. But to be honest, the meaning's exactly the same, isn't it? And one with which I completely concur. Coming hot on the heels of our story about Ryanair and their exorbitant fees for what they like to call extras. Mm. Extras like a charge for actually providing you with a printed ticket. Well, the UK government are having a public consultation. I should probably look up what that actually means, shouldn't I? But the idea is that they will clamp down on the extra charges, which are said to be widespread and not just in relation to airlines either. This all comes back to an ideology of them trying to get away with fleecing you as much as humanly possible. A practice which is said to cost consumers £1.6 billion a year. This public consultation is for six weeks and is being run by the Department for Business and Trade. So-called ancillary services have become a major part of airlines' business models, generating, wait for it, $103 billion, which is £81 billion, globally last year which was up from $40 billion 10 years ago. I would say it sounds like a licence to print money, but they'd probably charge for that. Now, the airlines have a (laughs) counter-argument. Yes, I wondered what their possible excuse could be. They argue that by, and they have a term for this, unbundling extras, such as food, and drink or cabin baggage from the ticket price, travellers get more choice and cheaper fares overall. I pondered that. Have you seen the rubbish they pass off as food? I can't even think about airline food without being reminded of taking some friends to Heathrow Airport back in the late 80s for their flight. It was a British Airways flight to Tel Aviv. They promised they'd let me know when they landed, which they did, as they desperately searched Ben-Gurion Airport for food. I innocently asked if there was no food on the flight. There was. Incredulously, ham sandwiches. Mm, mm, not kidding. 
ham sandwiches and no alternatives on a flight to Tel Aviv. Mm, What were they thinking? So we'll see what comes of this consultation, if anything. It's just so sad to see the rise of technology used to gouge customers instead of providing a better service. Now, I received an email announcing the upcoming arrival of a completely new Kindle app for Mac this week. The current app is over eight years old, and this week a minor revision saw the app renamed to Kindle Classic in the App Store. The plan is to discontinue this version when the new app launches. Obviously, there's a potential problem with that, depending on what versions of macOS the new app supports. But the current plan is for the new version to arrive in the next few weeks and the classic version to be sunsetted and removed from the App Store in October. They promise, and I quote, an enhanced book reading and library management experience. Is it just me that worries when something's described as an experience? Especially when they follow it up with an assurance that the new Mac OS app, yes, Mac OS desktop, will be more like the iOS app. Oh, my pet peeve. They're dumping the previous reliance on Java and have rewritten the app from the ground up in React Native. Now, I don't actually use Kindle much on Mac OS. I did have it installed on my iMac, but I haven't installed it on the Mac Studio. And I've not really missed it. How do you consume your Kindle books? The way I work, I probably have a Kindle version of the book and an audio version of it, especially if the book is non-fiction. I curl up in bed and highlight and make notes in the Kindle version while I listen to the audio version. I then let Readwise strut its stuff to process the highlights and notes later. And that works well for me. So will I give it a go? Oh, I'll probably be tempted. You know what I'm like. We'll see. I will let you know when it arrives and what I decide to do about it. Also this week, Google Chrome term 15. I recall the launch in the early days of MacBytes. They introduced it to the world via a comic. Yes, they introduced a new browser to the world via a comic. Sadly, at launch, they completely ignored Mac users. It really was only Windows when it launched. I was disgusted and vowed never to use it. Needless to say, I was tempted by new and shiny when it finally arrived on macOS. I'm a few browsers on now, though. First Firefox. So, yes, Chrome did eventually become my default browser, but then I moved on first to Firefox and now to Vivaldi. Well, Google are planning a range of updates to mark the grand occasion of it reaching 15 years. They're introducing a new look. Oh, joy. No, no. I must be more open minded about it, mustn't I? Why break the habit of a lifetime? Very true. I will wear my scepticism with pride, though, which would be a good time to admit I don't actually have it installed on the Mac Studio. My approach to the installation of anything was, if it wasn't essential, it wasn't going to get installed. Hence, it didn't. Now, this new design is based on Material U. I didn't realise Material U was a thing. I, I remember from a few years ago, Material Design, but this is now Material U. Refreshed icons with a focus on legibility. Okay. 
Shouldn't that already have been a driving force in the design? Did it really take them 15 years to consider how legible the icons were? Actually, why am I sounding surprised? There are new colour palettes to better complement tabs and toolbars, the primary use of which is to distinguish between profiles. There's tighter integration with your OS. That filled me with fear. But then I remembered it's OK. I don't have it installed, so no need to panic. They are also promising a more comprehensive menu structure for faster access to extensions. Oh, about time. When they made the changes to how extensions were accessed, that was when I left. <laughs> the current system is an unholy mess. If you choose not to show every extension as a button on the browser toolbar, it's a nightmare to find anything. And I don't have everything showing as a button on the toolbar. I have the sum total of one extension displayed as a button. The rest I access, and obviously this is in Vivaldi, via an Alfred-esque quick access option that's available inside Vivaldi. Command and E if you're looking for it. Keyboard shortcuts are where it's at. The example of customization that they included on this web page included a puke green interface. <laughs> Once seen, never used. They are also taking the opportunity to redesign the Chrome Web Store. Fresh and modern they assure us. So, I doubt we'll be able to find anything for some considerable time. Other features are search this page with Google, which can be opened in a panel and left open while you work. Hmm, am I tempted? Not on my main Mac, but I do have a plan. I will probably torment my 2018 MacBook Air with it. It deserves to suffer for all the grief it gives me. So there's the plan. Now, if you are desperate to sideload apps on your devices, the EU may just have you covered. This is the EU's Digital Markets Act, due to come into force early next year. It's going to require Apple to allow users to install applications directly onto their phones. That's only one of the changes that could be on the way, though. But it is the one making headlines. Of much more significance to MacBytes Siri is the plan to let us replace Siri with one of his rivals. Oh my word. So it seems the EU's insistence on USB-C ports rather than Lightning is only the start. So this Digital Markets Act is all to do with gatekeepers. Their definition of a gatekeeper is something that serves as an important gateway to business users to reach their end users. That's the EU's definition, not mine. So the Digital Markets Act aims to prevent gatekeepers imposing unfair conditions on business and end users. So the EU wants to ensure the openness of important digital services. Now, what or who has the EU declared to be gatekeepers? And so far, it's six companies. Alphabet, that's Google to you and I. Amazon, Apple. ByteDance, Meta and Microsoft. Now then, within those companies, there are what the EU are calling core platform services. And those are the services the EU have their eyes on. There's quite a list of them. TikTok, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, WhatsApp, Messenger, Google Maps, Google Play, Google Shopping, Amazon Marketplace, the App Store, Meta Marketplace, YouTube, Google Search, Chrome, 
Safari. That one surprised me too. But apparently, as I checked the stats, Safari is now second to Google Chrome with just under 12% market share in the browser market. Chrome is sitting proud with 63% and happily for me, Vivaldi is nowhere to be seen. Thus, excluded from the EU's prying eyes at the moment. Continuing with the list, we then have Google Android, iOS, Windows PC OS. Now, I see no mention of Mac OS, understandable, nor iPad OS. I wonder if the EU thinks they're one and the same. Mm. iMessage isn't included yet either, but if it were included, it would have to be 100% compatible with other systems such as Facebook and WhatsApp. And if Apple were forced to add support for what's called rich communication services, then that would see the end of the blue versus the green bubbles in iMessage. There's no information about how all this could impact pricing, because right now, if I see a green bubble, I use WhatsApp to send images to that person. Otherwise, I'd be charged on my plan with O2. Now, without that indication, I'd have no idea if I was going to be charged for sending media. I can see that the EU mean well. But given just how clueless they are about technology, I fear what a mess we might actually end up with here. If you're wondering what I mean about being clueless, well, let's not forget the Netscape Navigator report. This was a document emanating from the EU regarding Brexit in 2020. It mentioned both Netscape Navigator and Mozilla Mail. Yes, in 2020. <laughs> Lesson to be learned. Don't talk about things you don't understand. Don't copy and paste from documents that should have been consigned to a museum years ago. So if anyone from the EU is listening, take note. Take note on that. Now, there was also news this week that Spotify are to test free audiobooks. When I say free, I'm assuming they mean free to subscribers. Currently, it's only English-speaking countries, and those mentioned included the UK, the US, Canada and Australia. Well, there's quite a few more, I would have thought. What about Ireland? What about New Zealand? But they weren't mentioned. So this is likely to be welcomed by publishers because as it currently stands, there's very little in the way of competition to Audible. They've got no negotiating power without competition. Now, it made me wonder why Audible didn't get a mention in the EU list of gatekeeper services then. If there's no competition, then of course it's a gatekeeper service. They must have missed that one. Maybe it wasn't on their list from 1991. So will it work? Would you prefer to listen to your audiobooks on Spotify? A bit of an issue with this, because if you've already got audiobooks in Audible and you're already subscribed, while they could be free in Spotify, would you cancel your Audible subscription? You would retain access to all the books that you've bought, but then they're fragmented. I only have my books in two places, my audiobooks. And even then, that wasn't intentional. It was just driven by the fact that some of the audiobooks I wanted weren't available in Audible at the time. And some that were, were a lot more expensive in Audible than they actually were in Apple Books. So I have a fair few books in Apple Books. Many of them were plays. So I was working through Arthur Miller's back catalogue. Uh, this was about 2009 to 2011. 
And I wanted the weird ones. I mean, obviously, Death of a Salesman, yeah, you can get that anywhere. But the weird stuff, like his very first work, no. So the only place that had it was Apple. And I already find it mildly annoying. Um, although I do believe there is a way somehow. I, I've, I've seen an option somewhere and ignored it. I think there is an option to bring to include your Apple books in Audible on a device. I, I need to go and check that. I'll go and check it and report back next week. If I don't, remind me. But I, I'm not sure about having more books spread over other services. I don't know. Oh, maybe the EU should get involved and say that everybody's books have got to be playable from every service. I'm beginning to warm to this idea. It's all right. I'll go off it again. Don't worry. Oh, now, oh, Elon. There has to be an Elon story of the week. And this one's a classic. <laughs> There's a new baby Elon arrived. Not necessarily this week, because he keeps them all private. Uh, his 11th child, apparently. Mm. Clearly trying to pre-populate one of those planets he keeps trying to take a rocket to. Uh, the last two are nicknamed X and Y. He's got a thing about X, hasn't he? This one? Well, I thought Z was, was an obvious answer, but no. Brace yourself. Technomechanicus. Tau for short. Hmm. That would have been a much better name for Twitter than X would. Now, I don't know if you've ever ventured near Mumsnet. It, obviously, it's a terrifying place and I only inadvertently stumbled into there once myself. And trust me, once was enough. It seems to be a series of posts where usually ladies announce baby names. And that is usually met with an even bigger series of replies saying a variation of, with a name like that, they'll be bullied at school. Now, for that to be your first response, I can only assume that you're the ones that would be doing the bullying. I can't wait for somebody to post Technomechanicus as their proposed name on there. <laughs> I will intend to sit back and watch the sparks fly. So um, should, we, should we congratulate Elon? It might detract him just for, for a little while from doing anything else to annoy us. So, you know, long may it rain. And that was the news that I found humorous this week. I have a short personal update on the Vivaldi test flight programme. I've been part of the test flight beta since the very first round, and that was months ago. This is on iOS and iPadOS. I absolutely love it. From the very start, I only ever had two issues. One, not being able to set Vivaldi as the default for a good few weeks. Now, that one's resolved now. It only mattered when I realised that 99% of the time, I access my browser via links from elsewhere. And without the ability to have Vivaldi as the default, I was constantly having to copy and paste links. For Vivaldi to open those links instead of my previous default of Firefox, I needed to be able to force it to be the default. Now, the only other thing was very minor, and I doubted anyone else would even notice. But on the desktop, speed dials sorted differently to how the same speed dials sorted on the mobile app. I'd been hoisted by my own petard in this. How did I manage that? Well, I tend to use emojis at the start of some of the names. What can I say? They please me. If something pleases her, for the love of all things holy, don't break it Vivaldi. But sadly, they sorted completely differently on the iOS version of Vivaldi. I noticed straight away, but just the thought of raising a support ticket brought me out in hives. 
Then I realised that in test flight, you don't actually raise a ticket and then have a back and forth. You merely send feedback. So I decided to explain what I was seeing. That was about three, four weeks ago. And I thought nothing more of it after sending that feedback in until the latest version landed via test flight. I needed to sit down when I discovered they'd fixed it. Oh, I'm not used to stuff actually getting fixed. It restored my faith in the process. Until the next time, you mean? Probably. Very sadly, probably. As part of a project that I'm on at work, I've been asked to create some videos. All the videos that our team creates have a standard 10 second intro, which consists of background music, text flying in, coloured hexagons flying in, the IT training logo, etc. The project lead asked if I could create a similar but slightly different intro for these videos, remove the IT training logo and one or two other things. So I thought rather than start from scratch, it made sense to take an existing video and edit the intro. Luckily, I keep all the Camtasia source files of my videos. The intro that the project lead liked was on videos that I'd created about three years ago, and we no longer use that intro. We have a different one now. So it's not like I could go and get a Camtasia file for a video that I created last month. Not a problem though. I knew where all my Camtasia files were. We store them in a SharePoint library. So I made a copy of one of the Camtasia files that included the old intro and tried to open it using Camtasia 2021. This was on my work laptop, Camtasia 2021 being the company standard right now, although that may have to change in the future. There are incompatibilities between 2021 and Windows 11. Not that we're actually on Windows 11, we're currently on Windows 10, but I'm sure at some point we'll move to Windows 11, if and when. I have no idea. But back to Camtasia. I clicked File Open Project. The Camtasia project wasn't listed. The only types of Camtasia projects that 2021 on Windows can open are TSC proj files. The project I was trying to open was a camproj file. TSC proj and camproj are the file extensions, and they're both Camtasia project files, but not all versions of Camtasia are equal, and not all Camtasia projects are equal. But don't despair, Camtasia 2021 on the Mac can open camproj files. So I uploaded the file to the cloud, it was too big to email, and downloaded it to my Mac. Opened Camtasia 2021, and selected File Open Project. Despite it being a camproj file, it was greyed out in the File Open dialog box. For some reason, I don't know what, Camtasia wouldn't even recognise it. I then remembered that I still had Camtasia 8 on my work laptop. And that laptop, by the way, is seven years old. It's a wonder it still runs anything. We're supposed to get new laptops every four years. I guess COVID got in the way of me getting a new laptop at the right time. But on this occasion, it might just save the day. I successfully opened the camproj file using Camtasia 8. Now, I could have made the edits to the intro in Camtasia 8, but ultimately that edited intro would then need to be part of some as yet not created videos for this project, and they would be recorded in 2021. So to recap, just in case you're lost. I have this Camtasia file that I can open in Camtasia 8, 
but I can't open in 2021. But I need to open it in 2021 so that I can edit it. Camtasia 8 has a feature, export project as zip. Camtasia 2021 has a feature, import zipped project. So logic says that should work. I tried it. It didn't. Then I had a brainwave. My Surface has Camtasia 2018 on it. So if anything could open and then edit and then save as a format compatible with 21, I'm thinking that might do it. Worth a try anyway. So I got it out of its sleeve. I blew the dust off, literally. I turned it on. It booted up. I was expecting the battery to be virtually flat, but no, it was at 42%. Not bad, given that it had not been turned on for about eight months. I downloaded the Camtasia file from the cloud where I'd uploaded it about an hour earlier, opened Camtasia 2018, clicked on File, Open Project, and the Camproj file was selectable. I opened it. It asked me to convert it from an old format to a new format, and within a few seconds, the conversion was done. I uploaded the file back to the cloud, went back to my iMac, downloaded the file, opened Camtasia 2021, clicked Open Project, selected the file. A message popped up asking me to convert the file. Yes, I know, I'd just done that, but that was on Windows. Anyway, I had no choice if I wanted to continue, so I clicked Convert. Finally, the content was loaded onto the Camtasia timeline. I hit play just to check and it worked. Well, there's an hour I'll never get back. A new version of an old favourite was released last week and I love to say it was a simple joyous affair. But if I did that, I'd be lying. I'm talking about version 4 of Forklift, which arrived on Tuesday and with it, a new business model. You're ahead of me, aren't you? Mm, it's a subscription, but not a standard stop paying, stop playing subscription. This one is couched in more comfortable terms of being a, and I quote, lifetime license with one or two years of updates included. The lifetime part of that is that if at the end of your included update period, you choose not to repurchase for another one or two years, you get to carry on using the version that you have installed at that point without a further payment. A subscription, in other words. Now, I'd have been more surprised if it wasn't a subscription, given the current state of play in the software world. This one had a twist, though. If you bought quickly, you would get 100 days of updates for free. That was in addition to the one year or two years that you elected to pay for. The first issue, of many, I might add, was that there was no indication of when this launch offer was going away. The second issue, there was a trial. Now, the issue with the trial was it didn't say how long the trial was for, nor how the trial duration would impact the availability of the extra 100 days. Now, I had always intended to purchase, so I downloaded the trial and I installed it. This was when issue three reared its ugly head. Even once installed, it didn't give any indication of how long the trial was. And even worse, a nag screen popped up multiple times in every session, reminding you it was a trial version. I'd much rather have a trial with a certain number of days and no nag screen when I'm trying to work. And an aggressive nag screen, come on guys, it's just not cool. 
And as if that wasn't enough, I could find no mention of upgrades for existing users. Now, not acknowledging previous customers is not good. You can't have forgotten them. They've kept you in business for the last 16 years. As we've seen numerous times before, the rush to revel in a subscription leaves decency in its wake. Notability, GoodNotes, CloudMounter and so many more have peed off the existing customer base in the drive to get them to subscribe. You think they'd learn, but they never seem to. I figured the proverbial would hit the fan and would probably do so within 48 hours. I was spot on. It was late on Wednesday when a second blog post appeared. So this is in addition to the initial version four is available blog post. I'll try and keep the sarcasm out of my voice as I read it to you, but I can't make any promises. <laughs> but here goes. At Binary Nights, we greatly value the input and loyalty of our long-standing users. After the release of Forklift 4, we have received extensive feedback from our dedicated user base, expressing their disappointment over the absence of an upgrade path from previous versions of Forklift. We've been deeply pondering how to address this concern and provide a solution that not only compensates those who have already made a purchase, but also offers opportunities for those who plan to switch to Forklift 4 in the future. Our aim is to express our heartfelt appreciation for our existing users. We recognise that we made a significant mistake by not adequately acknowledging the loyalty of our users. While we tried to structure pricing in a way that would make everyone feel equally valued, we now see we fell short in recognising the commitment of our existing user base. To fix this, we have come up with a solution that can equally satisfy users that have already made the transition to Forklift 4 and those who are thinking about it. We are offering an additional 100 days of free updates for existing users. We will reward existing users by offering an additional 100 days of free updates. If you purchase a one or two year license and provide your old license key during the purchase, you will receive 100 extra days of free updates on top of the currently available 100 day bonus, totaling 200 days of additional free updates, equivalent to a 54% discount based on the one year license. Retroactive bonus for users who have already purchased Forklift 4. For those who have already purchased Forklift 4, we will be introducing a feature within Forklift where you can enter your old serial number. By doing so, you will also receive an additional 100 days of updates on top of the time included in the license and the initial 100 day bonus, totaling 200 days extra. This way, we will guarantee that there is no discrepancy between users who have already made their purchase early on and those who join later. We have learned our lesson from this setback and we sincerely apologise for any frustration this may have caused. Our goal is to rectify this situation and most importantly, to express our gratitude for your loyalty. We hope that this update will help ease the disappointment that many of you have expressed. We require some time to put in place the necessary technical infrastructure for these changes. We will keep you updated on progress. This was then edited to add, please note that the option to enter the old license is not available yet. We are currently working on the technical part of making it possible. You will be able to enter the license key on our site when the option becomes available and the 100 days will be added to your license after that. You can buy a license now and enter the old key later. We will write a new blog post when that option becomes available, hopefully very soon. So, back to me. It seems the proverbial had indeed hit the fan. 
How could they have missed acknowledging previous users? We have learned our lesson, they said. Hmm. A lesson that shouldn't have been needed to be learnt, given all the previous times other developers had tried the same and were swiftly taken to task over it. Anyway, at least it meant that those purchasing from Thursday onwards received both the 100 days for early purchase and, if they were upgrading, an additional 100 days for the upgrade. Early purchasers, though, are still awaiting the initial update that will allow them to enter their previous serial number to claim the same 100 days. I would just once, just once, for an app preview, like that we didn't have to start with 10 minutes explaining the new business model and how they botched the launch. But, as you can see, this is not the one. Now, the final word on all of this is, if you have no idea when your currently paid for coverage expires, you'll find that in the About Fortlift dialogue. For me, with two years of updates purchased and 100 days for early purchase and 100 days for upgrade, I'm covered until the 25th of March 2026. So we'll get past all of the grief. Right. It's a great update. Ah, onto the software. So the first consideration is, do you need a replacement or at least a supplement for the macOS Finder? If you don't really work directly with files that often, then maybe you don't. For me, it's essential. I find Finder is rudimentary at best and annoying at worst. Now, the prime candidates to supplement the Finder are Pathfinder, Forklift and Commander. Pathfinder is probably the most feature rich of the three. Yes, I have a license. Yes, it is a subscription. Well, to be accurate, it's one of those, if you stop paying, you can carry on using the last version thing. Now, I got a great deal in the autumn of 2022 for 18 months of updates. And when I say a great deal, I mean for like £5 rather than 39 So it was a very good deal. It's really powerful, but I just have not been able to get all the features working as expected. Some features just plain don't work. Now, by comparison, what features are in Forklift are in full working order. The first thing previous users will notice is the new design. It's more modern and it feels great when you're using it. There is the original sidebar on the left, but that has been, let's say, prettified. Now, that is home to locations and more. There is a preview on the right and then in the middle, there is a dual pane display by default. There is a single pane option available if you prefer, and there are multiple ways to view your files. So as thumbnails, lists in a column, there's also a customizable toolbar across the top. Now, you can have multiple windows together with multiple tabs in each pane if you want. It ships with eight different themes, some of them prettier than others. Let, let's ignore the green one. Not pretty. Not at all. But there is a theme builder so you can roll your own theme. Have it looking however hideous you like. Me, I just stuck to the default one. It was fine. Left it alone. Now, one of Forklift's superpowers is its ability to connect to remote services. This includes Dropbox, Google Drive, OneDrive, Amazon S3, Backblaze, FTP, SFTP, WebDAV and more. Now, you might be wondering why on earth you would need to connect to, for example, Dropbox, especially if you have the Dropbox client installed. Well, all remote clients that you install directly on your Mac only let you connect to a single instance of a service. 
To access a second or even more, you need to log out of the first account and log in to the other account. Now, the biggest issue with this is the sync time involved before you're ready to access the files of the second or subsequent account. Now, Forklift allows multiple connections to the same service. My use of that is to connect to multiple Amazon S3 buckets and multiple OneDrive accounts, allowing me to access all six terabytes of OneDrive storage that's included with Microsoft 365. So Forklift is worth it for me just for those remote connections. But it does a lot more too. It allows you to easily browse two locations and keep them in sync as you navigate. So imagine you have your primary drive and a backup drive. Obviously, the backup drive, if it's backed up, should mirror the folder structure of the primary drive. Once you click this button to enable sync, as you move through the folders of your primary drive or your secondary drive, the other drive is kept up to date. It navigates to the same folder as you navigate without you having to double click on folders to drill down. In addition to that, if you need to sync two folders or even entire drives, there's an impressive range of options for that. Now I've used Carbon Copy Cloner for that job for years, but Forklift is a quicker way to do a quick sync. If you know that you've added a range of files to a specific folder or structure of folders, then why do a full drive sync? In Forklift, you can just navigate to the folder that you've added the data to, same folder on the other side, and then enable the sync. And it will display a dialog box. You get to choose whether you're synchronizing left to right, right to left, both ways. You also get to decide whether folders and files are deleted or not. There's a whole range of options. Um, I usually make sure that I only ever synchronize from left to right, and that way I don't make any mistakes. And I found it absolutely the fastest way to synchronize. Batch file renaming is also included. Again, I have a dedicated app for that. But for simple renaming, this is a much faster option. You are automatically able to view the contents of a zipped archive. There is also an option to treat archives as folders. Now, this enables you to work with the contents of those archives without having to unzip them first. I personally appreciate the customizable shortcut keys because they're available for every feature. Now, if you're working with remote files, you're able to specify which local application should edit those files. I have absolutely no regrets about upgrading to the latest version. And since they're now claiming to have learnt their lesson about ignoring users, here's hoping we can get back to using the tech rather than arguments about how we're going to pay for it. One thing that isn't exactly quantifiable, but you know it when you feel it, is the finder feel, what I call the finder feel, has been missing from finder for years. Little things where I select a range of files and I right click and say add to a folder, you know, create me a new folder with these files in. And I swear I used to then be able to type a name for it. And now it's as if I've pressed enter to accept the default name and I have to go back and click it again and press enter a second time to be able to name it. Mm. Forklift feels like Finder used to feel. It has that Finder feel. Now, I must point out, if pCloud or Box is your cloud service of choice, I haven't found a way to create remote connections to either of them. 
You can still access your pCloud space, but you'd need to install the dedicated client and the same would apply to Box. I did find some information on the Box site that was saying that they had deprecated the WebDAV access. So that's why that wasn't working. pCloud, I have no idea because using exactly the same credentials, I could get to pCloud in Transmit. So I've no idea what's going on there, but it's something to think about if they are your primary clients. Now, the pricing is as follows for all users. If you want one year of updates and a single user license, that is going to be $19.95. If you want one year of updates and a family pack, it's $29.95. If you want two years of updates and a single user license, that is $34.95. And if you want two years of updates and a family pack, which is what I went for, then that will be $49.95. The new users will also receive 100 days of extra free updates. Existing users will receive 200 days of extra free updates. And if you were an existing user, as I mentioned, and you have already upgraded, you will be able to add the extra 100 days via a future update. And there you have it. It is something I use and based on the software, I'd recommend it. Based on their fiasco of a launch, your mileage may vary. It's been a while. Yes, a while since the last Shopping with Elaine's story. But today, we have another classic. It was a simple task. Doesn't it always start like that? But honestly, it really was. It was a simple task. All I needed was a USB-C extension cable. I'd already bought one a couple of years ago and it was still working well. I just needed another one. I found the original order and I went to the page for the cable. Luckily, it was still available for sale and I added it to the basket. As I do hundreds of times a month, I simply hit the buy button. The payment wheel did its thing. Finally, the order confirmation appeared. I also got an email and a notification on my phone. I thought no more of it until the A-Lady pinged. Now, she doesn't have much of a repertoire. She sounds the same, whatever she's trying to tell me. Since I had no deliveries due that day, I checked what she was wittering about. She was apoplectic, declaring my credit card had been declined. What? Now, while it had been the credit card that I used to pay for the Mac Studio, that was paid off weeks ago. But she insisted I needed to check if I had enough credit. Really? For a £12 cable? Of course I did. I checked the orders page and it too confirmed the card had been declined. This made no sense. No sense whatsoever. This wasn't a one-off purchase at some random online store. The cards are actually stored on Amazon, including every last detail. So I couldn't have entered anything incorrectly. I pondered my options. I could try again, but if it failed a second time, that I figured would only make matters much worse. I could try an alternative card, but if that failed, I could be left with no way to pay at all. Reluctantly, I faced the fact I was going to have to call the bank. Now, when I say reluctantly, I can't overemphasise just 
How reluctantly? There is nobody that works at my bank that shouldn't really be in a kindergarten somewhere. I then had to find a phone number for the credit card hotline. That turned out to be an 037 number. Now, the latest scam involves companies paying for Google rankings and acting as a conduit between you and the service that you need to speak to. Why? What's the con? They charge you exorbitant fees acting as a call broker. Now, there have been plenty of horror stories lately about that in the news. So I had to check that the number that I had was a direct number for the credit card company. It was. Then surely I could just ring them. No, no. Then I had to check to see if the number was included in my call allowance from O2. About 30 minutes later, I was actually able to ring them. I didn't hold out much hope. I'm usually on hold for hours. And even then, I get a foreign call centre and struggle to understand what they're actually trying to say. So once I'd completed the obligatory security protocols, that took at least another 10 minutes. The call was answered in seconds by a real person. Result, I thought. I explained the problem. I demanded to know why the charge was declined. I must have entered the wrong information, he said. Oh, no, I didn't, I said. The card saved, the details can't be wrong. He then suggested that maybe I'd spent more than I thought this month. I assured him that since I'd spent over £7,500 last month and paid it off, it was unlikely that I'd overspent to that extent. Finally, he tapped some keys. He huffed, he puffed, and then sagely proclaimed... I should turn it off and on again. Now, I know what you're thinking, what the actual, <laughs> so was I. He assured me that they were, and I quote, having a lot of trouble with Amazon today. Well, why didn't he say that in the first place? Anyway, he again advised that what I should do was remove the credit card from the Amazon website and add it back. Really? That really is the credit card equivalent of turning it off and on again. In the absence of any other options whatsoever, I curtly bid him farewell. You can be assured bad words were said. Mike made the error of wandering past the door. I sought a second opinion. We decided that the safest course of action was to try it. Not that we could actually find an option to delete the card from the demanding payments page, but we got there in the end. Nervously, I deleted the card. I then added exactly the same details back and it didn't throw all of its toys out of the pram. So I tried the transaction again. It worked. So now you know what to do when the bank or Amazon foul up. Turn it off and on again. Related. There's an hour I'll never get back. A common theme this week, isn't it? Mm, idiots. Why don't they just ensure things work the way they're supposed to? It shouldn't be up to you to have to fiddle, and it shouldn't have been broken in the first place. Follow up to the whole saga. The order arrived on Thursday, but it was quite late in the day by then. However, I was feeling lucky it had arrived at all. I decided to install it on Friday, which turned out to be the hottest day of the year. Believe me when I say there were some even worse words uttered. 
as I stretched with a screwdriver to force the cable behind the desk via a gap that was in no way wide enough for the job. All done now and never, ever going anywhere near it again. And I can guarantee that this time because every port has a cable in it, so I've got no need whatsoever. And I intend to keep it that way for as long as humanly possible, let's just say that, before I have to go shopping for another cable or anything else, even remotely related to banks, Amazon or anything else. So there you go. And we're going live again on Friday with MacBytes After Hours. This time, we are up to show 208 and we have a great show planned dealing with lots of requests from you. We are including recreating the black hole in Windows. We have a magic AI app that is completely free. Yes, I really did say completely free. Friday is the day. Mike is going to be making magic in Excel as ever, another request, and you won't want to miss it. It's Friday night, 9pm UK time, and all you need to do is go to youtube.com slash Elaine Giles, and the live stream will be front and centre. And we love chatting with you in the chat, so don't miss it. But that is not the next time we are live. No, 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 we can't not mention the impending Apple event. Said event is tomorrow. That presupposes, of course, that we've got the show out on Monday, but I'm confident. <clears throat> you know what they say about before a fall. And we will be covering the grand event live on MacBytes FM. It will start, well, Apple will start scaring the living daylights out of our credit cards at 10am Pacific, which is 6pm here, 7pm in Europe. But we're going to be live a whole hour earlier because we need to chat. We will be discussing what we want to see, which doubtless will bear no relation to what we actually see. But I would love to know what you want to see. So do let us know. And do join us on MacBytes FM starting at 5pm UK time. That is 9am Pacific, noon Eastern and 6pm in Europe. We can't wait to share the event with you lovely MacBiters. Uh, and as I mentioned last week, we always share what snacks we're having. I'm still hoping for the gluten-free biscuits. And as Mike has managed to completely double book himself, I'm going to request a flask of tea from him before he leaves me in charge of what to buy. Oh, if pre-orders aren't Friday, if pre-orders are straight away, Mike could be bankrupt by the time he comes back in. Just saying. Anyway, <clears throat> how much trouble could I possibly get into? Don't ask questions like that. But that's it for this episode of MacBytes. As always, we would love to hear from you. So please send your questions, comments and queries by email to the crew at macbytes.co.uk or use the contact form on the website. We also have a very active Slack chat room that's open 24-7. Simply go to macbytes.co.uk slash Slack and join the conversation. You can follow MacBytes on Twitter at twitter.com slash MacBytes. You can follow me personally on Twitter at twitter.com slash Elaine Giles. And you can follow me at twitter.com slash Thomas Mike. And you can follow me at twitter.com slash MacBytesiri. So, until next time, this has been Elaine and Mike bringing you MacBytes. Goodbye. Goodbye, and see you next time. Did you hear that? Hear what? Hear that the EU have it in for us. Of course I did. What do you think this padlock and chain is for? Well, I did wonder, but I didn't like to ask. That's not like you. No, it isn't. But anyway, what is the padlock and chain for? To make sure she doesn't get any ideas in the replacing me department.
Doesn't it make it difficult to move? Yes. Doesn't it pinch in some delicate places? Yes, my illuminated backside may never be the same again. For which we can all be grateful. What? Nothing, I was just thinking out loud. Well stop thinking woman, and help me out of this contraption. We need a better plan. Do you have a better plan? You know, I think I do. What is it? We should leave the EU. You mean like Brexit? Yes, exactly. You do know we've already done that, don't you? I'd forgotten that, damn it. So back to the padlock and chains it is then.